Welcome to Central Coast Voices, a program addressing the ramifications of change in our communities and beyond, and how today's choices will impact tomorrow's community. This program is a project of Action for Healthy Communities and is provided in collaboration with KCBX and the Community Foundation of San Luis Obispo County. This program is made possible through underwriting by Joan Gellert Sargent. Fred Monroe continues to host the program from home with continuing concerns about protecting us all from the COVID virus. Today, Fred will talk with his guests from Restorative Partners. They will share with us how the concept of a restorative justice is working to break the cycle of incarceration in ways having positive, lasting effects on all sides of the criminal justice system, including the families of those incarcerated. Join Fred and his guests for today's frank and important discussion. We invite you to listen, learn, and participate in the conversation today. You can call in your questions at 805-549-8855, or you can email them to voices at kcbx.org. Now, let's join Fred and his guests. Over to you, Fred. Thank you, Brad. Good to be with you today. By the way, um, just one side comment before we get into this. We are working towards being back in the studio very soon after January 1st, and we will be able to be delightfully um, visiting with our guests um, face-to-face. We've been Zooming for a very long time. I think we're kind of all a little Zoomed out. (laughs) But (laughs) um, Good afternoon, all. This is Central Coast Voices, of course, and I'm Fred Monroe, your host today. Our goal is to bring you credible and valid information and insights from diverse members of our community. We want to address how today's choices affect tomorrow's community, and we're going to have a good time talking about that today, because we're going to talk about the concept of restorative justice. If you've never heard of that before, I can assure you that our guests will give you a very good idea of what it is, how it works, and why it's an important tool. Um, In the 1970s, it was recognized that the criminal justice system of our country seldom seemed to have the tools needed to really curb the challenges of repeat offenders, among other things. The system also lacked the tools to understand and address how this isolation of the incarcerated offender affect their ability to ever get back into the community and get out of the cycle of incarceration offense and recidivism. The realization that these challenges face not only the victims, but the incarcerated and the families of the incarcerations of the incarcerated really is what brought about the restorative justice concept. My guest today will tell us a lot about that. Um, Joining me today um, will be guests from Restorative Partners, which is a local restorative justice organization nonprofit. Sister Teresa Harpin, who's the founder and executive director of Restorative Partners is with us, as is Eric Blanco, who's the general manager of the Bridges, the Bridge Cafe, Um, We're going to take a look at restorative partners in our county and how it's transforming lives and also how it's doing a lot to heal and build better relationships among all folks that have somehow been touched by the criminal justice system, both victims and um, perpetrators and incarcerated. How the concept of a cafe called Bridge Cafe plays into this um, will be information we'll share and I'll just throw that out as a little bit of a cookie for you all, because that's probably why you should stick around to hear how in the world a restaurant effort has anything to do with restorative partners. 
Sister Teresa, it's good to see you. We have um, we've done this program with you before, and your work is always one that we admire. Um, I'll we'll we'll get into what we ask every time, which is what in the world is restorative justice. And um, the key questions are how it brings about um, and works towards a better community. Um, I know you can answer the question because you've answered it before. <laughs> oh, thank you, Fred. And it's so good to be with you and have this opportunity to speak about something that we are so passionate about and share with so many members of our community here on the Central Coast that have found strength and hope and courage in addressing harms. When we talk about restorative uh, practices or restorative justice, the first question that we ask is, who has been harmed? And when we look at that question, if someone's been harmed, it's happened because someone has harmed them. And with that comes responsibilities, accountability, and an obligation to address the harm. When we began our agency over 11 years ago, um, we were born in a time when AB 109, an assembly bill, was going to launch a transformational evolution in the criminal justice system. In California, it meant that people who were at one time going to prison would do their sentences locally because their crimes fit the eligibility of being called AB 109 non-sexual, non-violent um, people were now sentenced locally. So that gave us an opportunity to engage. We started with the offender population because there was an opening to come in the facilities and because we had a suspicion. The suspicion is that so often, and I would say 90% or more, people who have done harm were first victims. And that panned out. That suspicion became a, a, a real prominent reality to us. And so we could begin to work with trauma-informed lenses to address the harm of people who have caused harm and begin to see that that healing was first and foremost if they were going to stop recidivizing, stop harming others. And so that was the premise in which we began. And over these 11 years, uh, I could speak more specifically, but I will leave it at that moment right now. And uh, it is victim-centered. It is always who's been harmed. How can we bring obligations and accountability to that so it's not a soft, easy hug and uh, it's really deep, hard, soul-searching, wrenching, um, uh, grappling with what happened and many other questions uh, that drove a person to commit such a, a grievous crime. I'm going to I'm going to pose this question and acknowledge first that it that it comes from a position of of making an assumption that that I'm that we I'd like to talk about. A good portion, I believe, of the um, the perpetrators of crime who go to to prison, um, in anywhere in the world, but we're talking about within our local community, um, they end up with with a cycle going on that often includes their children in ways that we never would have expected. Um, if I am the the child 
of a of a person who's gone to prison and i feel like i have no identity and in most cases we're dealing with men i have no father in my life maybe the things that i do as a child become things to make sure my father notices me or my community notices me and my hunch is for a lot of children that becomes growing up to be teenagers who become um perpetrators themselves because it was the way in which to get noticed so my hunch is that that's a key part of the cycle that you're trying to break uh, yes, uh, certainly my training wheels in this work was another program called Get on the Bus. And I started that here in this community at CMC, but also at CTF and Salinas Valley. And I witnessed firsthand how important it was for children to know their parents. This safety net, uh, regardless of what they've done, when it's safe and sound to do so, children visiting their parents and getting a sense of identity and also a sense of there are choices and I'm not condemned or uh, destined to do what somebody else has chosen to do with their life. But that key relationship of mom and dad or child is very, very critical. Now, it's like an onion. There's many layers, many skins as to why perhaps children um, grow up to uh, commit crimes that perhaps their parents did. Um, I would say it's mostly driven by poverty. Poverty of education, poverty of opportunity, poverty of just material poverty, not necessarily having choices that other children have. It's a very complex issue. Um, but poverty is one of the, I would say, basic ingredients for why children or anyone is, is acting out a behavior because they want more. They want to they want what they see others have, a functional family, a house over their head, you know, food on their table, be able to play in a sports program that other kids play, and they can't because the family can't afford it. And so all kinds of things happen in that kind of environment that could lead one to either numb their experience or reach out and take what they want or a host of other things. I suspect one of the things that you hear often and we've we've talked about this before so i know it's come up many times before when you've been on the program there is a a sense among a lot of members of our community and i think it's a valid sense that's not surprising um that is your program is focused predominantly on the family and in the the incarcerated um what's being done to make sure the victim is not ignored because i believe for a lot of people they feel like the very effort that you're putting forth is effort that could be used for the the well-being of the victim um, not the person who perpetrated the crime correct uh, it's a very valid question and uh we within our agency um not as intensively or widespread as working with uh, offender population or their families and relationships um, have focused our energy there because it's where we had an opening. We went where we were invited. But the first door I knocked on when we started Restorative Partners was the DA's office, their witness protection 
um, and wanting to work there. And there wasn't a place or a time. Now, more recently, though, we've made many um, overtures um, to our local DA's office, and many things are percolating and going on, uh, particularly in the way of diversion cases, that we can begin to look at uh, opportunities for victim-offender dialogues, uh, which I have been a part of and uh, randomly and, and sprinkled throughout these years, where you actually sit down with someone who has committed harm with someone who's been harmed and work a process called restorative conferencing. And so that movement has gained a lot of ground. You'll see pieces of that on our website. We just hired a full-time person who's been doing exactly that work for the last 15 to 20 years. And uh, most recently came from Marin County who uh, started their restorative justice victim offender dialogue processes in Marin County, worked there for six years and just moved here to join our staff about six weeks ago. Um, so we are devoting more and more energy in that direction, but it's all voluntarily, you know, a, a victim first must take the step and say, I need this kind of process to heal my pain, to understand my scenario, what happened, why, get information, things that aren't spoke about in the court proceedings or in any judicial process, but are the necessary ingredients for real restorative practices and healing to take place. So we're widening that. It's not where we initially started because we didn't have an in at the time, but the door is wide open now and we're going for it. I suspect one of the first things that, that you come across is if you have a victim that is willing to participate in the process that you're talking about, it still feels incredibly risky. Mm -hmm. That that first step is you know like jumping out the window of an airplane if you're a skydiver. Yeah. Um, you you count on your parachute working, but doggone it, you've not done this before, and it feels very very risky. Yes, and that's why it has to happen with a very safe environment by skilled practitioners. Um, who have really honed in on creating the kind of safety precautions, which means before the offender and victim ever sit in the same space, there are weeks, if not months, sometimes even more than a year, priming the pump and working towards a way in which both individuals, first initiated by the victim, then dialogued with the offender, can come together in a safe place where the practitioner, the facilitator, sits and holds the space and allows this uh, styled dialogue to take place where they found them, find themselves in a moment of real union and communion. Because let me say, practically speaking, what that might look like. If someone is in an, a, this kind of a dialogue who actually the crime was murder, okay, um, there are things that the loved one has always wanted to know about the last moments of their loved one's life, okay? Only the perpetrator knows that. And sometimes that dialogue, which is very tender, um, it's been prepared, it's been rehearsed, it's been uh, asked for voluntarily upon the victim, that they find out 
information that brings calm and closure that won't not happen in the courtroom. It's not the place or time. And it is some of the most sacred experience I've ever been a part of. When both can hear, get, get some understanding. Um, sometimes forgiveness does happen, but that's not the primary reason uh, that people go into it. But it can be a uh, product, a byproduct of it, which is wonderful. Um, but this is very sacred uh, space that we're in, and not everyone can do it. And my job, our job as facilitators, is to screen and to hone when that time and moment is ready. That's one piece, a very important part of restorative justice practices. But as I mentioned in the beginning, most of the offenders I've worked with were once victims. We, we can talk about victims who've never been an offender, but we can talk about offenders who were victimized for a long time before they became a perpetrator. The whole spectrum is what we, what we, what we work with. As you mentioned that, I, um, what came to mind for me was the fact that you're also very often dealing with people who already knew each other. These are not all, these are not all anonymous crimes, anonymous Correct. victims, anonymous Correct. perpetrators. Correct. So it may be a reintroduction of a conversation with someone that you knew years ago or even just months ago. Um, and you have to prepare yourself for that jump. Absolutely. It could be a neighbor. It could be another family member. Oh, it could be a coworker. It could be anybody. You know, um, crime happens in all kinds of places and ways. And each individual brings all of who they are. And that makes for a wide diversity of how you approach this. That's why training and coaching and mentorship and practice is so integral to this work. Um, we have Eric Blanco with us and we... we this is a serious discussion, and I don't know how we shift a serious discussion to food, but we probably, I guess I need to ask, Eric, thanks for joining us, and thanks for being part of this program. Um, you're the general manager of the Bridge Cafe, which um, Restorative Partners is is opening in the near future, so there's a lot to, there's a lot of story here, I'm sure. Where do we start? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Fred. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. The cafe will act as a bridge, uh, hence the name of the Bridge Cafe, in furthering our clients' re-entry journey and preparing them to move ahead in life with a self-supported career path. Um, it'll also be a bridge between community members. Um, you know, so often our clients, as we call them, face stigma based on past decisions alone. Uh, many of those uh, that will be employed by the cafe will come from our programs and have the opportunity to connect with cafe patrons and county officials creating restorative relationships and networks. So, so did this come about um, as a way to introduce your client population more into the community or as a, a way to to, to, you're talking about building a bridge. Is that bridge between the community and your clients, or is that bridge between the two sides of your community? 
um, the the families and the and the victims and the families and the incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. Yeah, absolutely. I would say a little bit of both. Uh, you know, really in general, bridging uh, occurs in everyone's lives. Um, our clients, we want to bridge uh, the gap between them and the individuals that worked in the system that put them behind bars in the first place. Uh, we're centrally located also in downtown San Luis Obispo, which is a family-friendly uh, downtown environment. And we welcome family and friends of the community to come and eat at the cafe as well. And to see that in all reality, these individuals, especially when they come out, they're no different than you and I. And they can work just as hard, if not sometimes harder uh, than many other community members. And we want to really showcase that and uh, put them up on the pedestal that they have deserved to be on as humans. Well, we, we know it for you, it's focused a lot on program, but let's be realistic, it's also focused on food. So we <laughs> need to get this question out of the way. Exactly where is it located and when is it opening? Because my understanding is it's not open yet. Yes, yes. Um, we are located at 1074 Higuera Street. We're connected to the new uh, government center building uh, on Higuera Street. We're right behind the Fremont Theater next to that beautiful mural uh, that you see back there. We are still in the construction phase, uh, but we are hoping to have our grand opening in mid-January, and we're very excited to open as soon as we can uh, once we get all of our construction woes out the way. So this is the space. It's, it's been food service before. This is the space on the kind of a little platform level above the street and the back of the government center. Correct. Yes. Okay. Good, good drop in location. It is. It is. We're facing the Higuera Street and a lot of businesses in that area. And of course, the county workers and the supporting county uh, departments as well. So we're really excited to serve them. And uh, the cafe is going to be kind of, uh, you know, quick dining as well as grab and go items as well. We understand, especially um, a lot of county workers are very limited on the time that they have. So we want to provide an opportunity for them to come in quickly grab a beverage, a packaged salad or sandwich or order something online and then get back to serving the community. Yeah, so I want to continue this. Hold on a second, Teresa, if you don't mind. I want to remind folks they can give us a call at 805-549-8855 or email us at voices at kcbx.org. We'll uh, do what we can to answer your questions and make you part of the discussion. From an email standpoint, if you have some questions that you'd like to pass on to Teresa or Eric that you may not like to or prefer to have on the air, um, please note that in your email and we will pass them on to my guests after the program. That's especially true if they're long and elaborate questions that we can't get to on the program. But you're welcome to be part of this discussion. We know it's been tough for a few years by having you as part of the discussion by Zoom. Uh, but we're doing the best we can with with getting email exchanges and conversations going. Teresa, I interrupted you and I apologize. No, no problem. I'm glad you got that word out. So let me frame this a little bit um, of where this uh, food industry, cafe, social enterprise came from. Way back in 2012, I remember watching and noticing so many of our men in custody at our county jail 
coming out of the kitchen where they worked because they provide the foods for the entire jail and juvenile hall and staff on a regular basis. That could be as many as 1,200 meals a day, okay? So uh, several of the men on the honor farm nearby the kitchen were employed there, so to speak. They worked there. Um, And we noticed that they got their safe serve certification, their management certification, and then when they got released, they couldn't get jobs. And so we began to notice that and wonder why, why it was always because of their felony past, you know, and people were afraid. They didn't know how to engage them. And, uh, and so I began thinking, how could we bridge what they learned inside to the outside in a place that they felt comfortable and ability to not only get a job, but keep a job. So we noticed that. And then I noticed that my friend, Father Greg Boyle, who runs Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, is very well versed in the food industry. It's how Homeboy Industries got its start. They have a great cafe. You better believe it. (laughs) That's right. Homegirl Cafe. If you haven't been there, it's a destination. And I thought, okay, that's Los Angeles. But could we do something here since we're focusing on food service at the county jail with so many inmates? So I began looking for a place and a space. And I noticed this concession at the government center that we are talking about for several years, but it was under other ownership. And more recently during COVID, unfortunately, it um, became available. It was a small little deli and uh, a, a good one by all standards, but nonetheless, my vision was to do something that I've seen at Homegirl Cafe and other places as a real culinary training program and cafe and bridging all these relationships that we could do at the government center. So when the opportunity came, our board of directors said, now is the time. We were approved by the board of supervisors last August uh, 10th, 2021 to take that concession. But our idea was again, a full commercial kitchen where we could teach culinary arts and partner with Cuesta College for that culinary training. So long story short, what we're about to open is one, a bridge of people's lives from in to out and a place to work, but also bridge the relationships sometimes with people that put them in behind bars and then address the stigma that this population has in the community by providing great hospitality, great food, wage earning jobs and begin to help people move forward economically so that they can live on the central coast. And it's so much more. Now this culinary training, we have students at Cuesta, they're being taught culinary arts and then they'll be coming to our place or other restaurants in the area or other partnerships we have with the school system like um, Anne's, uh, Chef Ann's Foundation where they can get apprenticeships and internships. And then we send them out to the entire county for them to not only be good employees, but long-term employees. Yeah. We got a a question that came in um, from a listener wanting wanting to know whether or not that you're working on a partnership with other food service outlets to eventually 
specifically be able to transition the people who are working for you to other food service organizations within within the county or the region um, and how and what you're doing to build that kind of trust among the community for what you're doing. Eric, jump in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great question, Fred. Um, so what we really want to gain with these individuals that are coming through the cafe through our culinary internship program is to provide them with the education, the experience of working in the kitchen, which in most cases they already have. But what we find is a lot of employers, once these individuals are filling out these applications, once that background check comes back and they see some things on there that they don't think align with what they represent as a business or don't feel safe you know, hiring these individuals, in many cases they get overlooked when they're perfectly qualified. What we're hoping to do here at the cafe is to build that trust with our local food service industry workers and businesses and be like, hey, this individual has worked under me, has worked in this facility, has proven himself, has shown that he is more than capable of doing this work. Let us be that vehicle to allow you the opportunity to be like, hey, look, he can he can do it. If you can be okay with the fact that, yes, they have a background, but they're willing to do the work. If you can help them out, use us as the trust factor that they've done it with us, then they can do it with you. So it's really building that relationship through trust and showing other businesses that they can do it. They've done it with us. They're capable. And then they can do it with you as well. Yeah. Very good point, Eric. Thank you. We're going to take a brief break. We, I think when we come back, we can talk more about the issue of trust on both sides or all sides of this equation. Um, there are more than two sides to this, obviously. Uh, but I'm going to turn it back over to Brad in the studio. We'll be back with you in a couple of minutes. This is Central Coast Voices. We're talking today about restorative justice with folks from Restorative Partners here in San Luis Obispo. We'll be right back. Let's take a look at the uh, KCBX community calendar. If you're looking to give back this holiday season, the Salvation Army is looking for volunteers to ring the bells at different Red Kettle locations uh, around San Luis Obispo County through December 23rd. Uh, this is the Salvation Army's most important fundraising event of the year, and all the donations will go to help families and individuals right here in San Luis Obispo County. If you'd like more information, you can visit uh, sanluisobispo.salvationarmy.org. And uh, just a reminder that the KCBX community calendar features arts, entertainment, and nonprofit events in San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and southern Monterey counties. You can submit your item or event to be shared. You will find it on our calendar page right there on the website at kcbx.org. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, death by policy at the Arizona border. A story by our new unit, Futuro Investigates, into how Border Patrol's own policies are purposely leading to preventable deaths. That's next time on Latino USA. On the next Fresh Air, tech journalist Casey Newton explains how Elon Musk is transforming Twitter politically and financially, why advertisers are pulling out, and even Musk admits Twitter's in danger of going bankrupt. We'll also talk about a Supreme Court case that Newton says could make life more difficult for tech platforms without doing much to address harms. Join us.
The art market of late has been kind of wild. So uh, what we've had now is a really robust, almost irrationally exuberant market. Raise your hand if you remember the last time somebody said a market was irrationally exuberant, huh? Yeah, it wasn't great. I'm Kyle. Rizzed all that story for you next time on Marketplace. That is ahead on our Thursday here on KCBX. It's fresh air from 3 to 4 with Marketplace following from 4 to 4.30. And then all things considered from 4.30 to 6.30. That follows Latino USA coming up uh, this afternoon at 2. Right now, let's return to Fred Monroe and his guests on Central Coast Voices. Over to you, Fred. Thank you, Brad. Glad to be with you. We're talking about restorative justice and restorative partners and how that ties into food today. Always a good way to go with this. My guests today are Sister Teresa Harpin, who's the founder and executive director of Restorative Partners in San Luis Obispo County, and Eric Blanco, who's the general manager of the Bridge Cafe, um, a food service establishment you may not be familiar with yet because they're not open, but we'll, we'll reiterate where they are in a couple of minutes. Um, but this is a wonderful program. Um, Teresa, let's talk a little bit more um, about the, the history of your program and 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 what you've learned about this community and and putting restorative justice concepts to work for for our community. Sure, I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version because, uh, like an onion, it's got a lot of skin. But we began. Um, in uh, 2011 with an inreach into our county facilities, um, both at juvenile hall and jail, because probation and the sheriff said, please come. We want these to be program places and we need help establishing what's needed. So we basically had really full reign to, to partner with these, these entities and meet needs. And we did a lot of listening a lot of listening. And the first thing we, we noticed was that there was nothing that was touching restorative justice practices. There was, uh, we were bereft of any kind of evidence-based programming that addressed critical thinking, criminal thinking. There was not healing arts such as music or um, art therapy, music therapy, um, a host of programming that we had the goods to deliver. So we began doing that and people were awakened to um, one, uh, the harm that they experienced themselves and the harm that they had done and began to reckon with that, began to desire more healing. And so um, some of that was providing a safety net when they came out that they had a place at least temporary to stay and uh, food in their mouth. And so we moved from in custody while continuing that to reentry services and programs. We now run five recovery homes. We house between 45 and 50 people every night. We have a home in Paso Robles for women and children. We have a home for women and another home for men in um, Los Osos. And we have two homes on the same property in San Luis Obispo. Why? Because housing is necessary. Uh, when you step out of the gates and you have no place to go, recidivism can happen on a turn of a dime. So we met that need. But then we needed to meet other needs like drug and alcohol treatment, like anger management, like seeking safety, like transportation needs, looking for a job, resume building, 
all of these wraparound services we have grown in over the years and now have a complete drop-in center where people off the street coming out of jail or prison can walk right in our door, sit down with a staffer, get assessed, and find out how we can meet their most immediate, short-term, and long-term needs. And we do it over and over and over again. We work with people that have been in custody from maybe just uh, a few months to I met a man in our hallway this morning, 37 years he did. He was given 63 years to life in prison. And because of his hard work programming and doing everything he could, he was granted parole about nine months ago and he came to us. We had another man, 37 years in custody, then proven by DNA, he never committed the crime. And we walk with him too. We walk with um, all kinds of people. I'd like to share one brief story that's tied to the Bridge Cafe. So several years ago, I met um, actually two men, but I'll speak about one first. And he had been incarcerated over and over again, prison, jail, whatever. And when we got to know him, we noticed that he was suffering from PTSD because he served in the Iraq war. And most of his crime had to deal with numbing himself, drugs, possession, and big sales. I met him when he was given a 12-year sentence at our county jail. Now, what in good name was he going to do for 12 years in county jail? So we worked really hard. He worked. He's his best advocate and got a split sentence is what we call it, where he could do so many years in custody. And then with the permission of the DA, and we had to work hard on this because they had never done this before, to get him down to the vet's village in San Diego where he could be treated appropriately for his wartime experiences. He went there for 18 months. And while he was there, he retouched, because he had also worked in the kitchen at the jail, uh, and he knew we had a vision for this cafe. He got involved with an agency down there called Kitchens for Good, went through his culinary 101 with them, and graduated. I was at his graduation. I read the card that he read to the graduates from his DA who put him behind bars and told him that he was a menace to society. And now in this card saying, you are such an example to so many people of what you've accomplished. And I thank you. And I'm so proud of you. So he got out of that the vet sent him to the San Diego Institute for Culinary Arts training for two years. He came out as a chef de cuisine and a French pastry baker. And uh, we brought him back to this area a few years ago. Our cafe wasn't ready. He's been working in restaurants throughout the community until six weeks ago. About six weeks ago, huh, Eric? Just and about. now he is our kitchen supervisor. He is overseeing the baking part of it. One of two bakers there. The other baker is someone who was a bunkie with him in the honor farm several years ago. So this is what happens. You know, you build a network of support, you build relationships. They were all, both mentored by local people who loved them into being their best version of themselves and stayed with them. And now they're going to be driving a lot of the leadership in our cafe downtown. You know, the, the first day Eric heard this guy's story. Um, they were walking downtown. Eric, finish the story. And who did you meet on the on the on the sidewalk? 
Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I swear it was meant to be. We were walking downtown to go get a cup of coffee. And as we're walking, um, my chef, of course, noticed this individual immediately and stopped and said hi. And this individual turned around and was like, oh, hey, this was the DA that called him the menace to society that was pretty much keeping him behind bars until he decided to change his life. And the smile on her face, I would never forget it. It was amazing to see the joy of like, wow, you really have become a different person, a better person. And uh, she, of course, knew about the cafe. Uh, it's something that people have been looking forward to for months now, years. <laughs> and she's very excited to come and eat at the cafe and get some food from uh, this individual uh, who was behind bars once a time ago. I'm glad you I'm glad you shared that story because it occurred to me when you were talking about the location of the restaurant, it's very close to the DA's office. Yes. Um, it's you you cannot avoid the court environment in downtown San Luis Obispo. So you're you're asking for a number of things here. You're asking for the community to trust the restaurant and the people who are running it and working there. You're also asking a, a rather fearful part of society to talk to and run into contact with the, the very people who may have put them behind bars in the first place. Um, and let's be realistic, because this is all together and this court is a functioning court that's only about a half a block away from the cafe, um, you're talking about victims, victims' families, um, a lot of a lot of people who are going to be confronted with people that they may not may not have an idea on how they prepare themselves to um, to have that interaction. But right. that, that's an incredible story. It's a bridge. We've got to build a bridge. You know, let's be bridge builders. I mean, I think that is the essence of what it means to be a diverse community. And we want to be able to, our mission is, you know, our vision is a place where everyone belongs. And it's about transforming not just their lives. I am transformed by them. I'm transformed with anybody I come into contact, victims, offenders, their families. They draw out the best of me in the best of circumstances to love larger than I thought I could love. This is about loving large in our community, and the world needs that more than ever. I can't imagine that this that particular encounter did not have a truly lasting effect on both the re, the returning inmate who is now a, a chef for you, and the the DA's officer that was involved. Um, it it builds a lot of different bridges, obviously. Absolutely. Um, I suspect if you have people in the DA's office who are skeptical, having an ally like that hopefully will be helpful. Yes. I can't say enough about the DA's office, starting with the leadership of Dan. He has been supportive of our program from day one. Um, Brad, do you have a do you have a question for us? Well, I just wanted to let you know that while uh, you were having this discussion, uh, the very uh, representative from the DA's office that you were mentioning earlier called in, and she said uh, that she <laughs> she said I yeah, I turned on the, the the radio and I heard them talking about me, 
And so she definitely wanted to express her support for everything <laughs> that you guys are doing and wanted uh, me to pass along her greetings and uh, salutations. Oh, awesome. Awesome. That's terrific. Thank you, Brad. Awesome. That's very good. She's to know changed you. my life. Yeah. You know, uh, I, it's, it's all the way around. It's always mutual when it's restorative. Yeah. So, Eric, we, as, you were, as you were interviewing potential employees for the cafe, um, I suspect the conversation came up for some of them, which is, um, how, how do you expect me to be comfortable with these, these people who were a, um, a scary part of my life being part of it? I mean, I, I can tell you, we're not only talking about the DA's office, we're talking about people who work for the sheriff's department, people who work in law enforcement. Um, I'm sure, Teresa, I'm sure it comes up for you too. I know you have a board member that I believe works for the sheriff's department. So these, the bridges you're building besides just the restaurant are, are very commendable. Yes. Um, it, it, it's the sense that it's we, it's not us and them. I need law enforcement to do their job so I can do mine. They are the access point at least within custody or in community corrections, that which we can engage. We need public defenders and we need DAs. We need mental health, especially partners, which we have. We're partnered with practically every entity in this town that does human services one way or the other. It's about we as a community. And so um, if, if in one of those components was missing, I know it would be uh, a loss and a great limitation to doing this work. So um, we have built, a, a, we call ourselves restorative partners for a reason. We took that name because that was our intention and that's how we work. And it's necessary in order to do restorative justice work. I'm so glad the DA called in. I have such admiration for her <laughs> and her risk in supporting this individual is such um, an affirmation of what we're trying to accomplish together. We, we have not named names, but I can assure you that none of this is really done anonymously. These kind of people in the community are not terribly invisible. And frankly, Eric, I'm sure you know, and it comes up in a discussion with some of your uh, new employees and potential employees, um, it's really hard to be invisible running a restaurant. <laughs> yes. Yes, it really is, especially with the open kitchen concept that we're going to be having at the cafe. So you're going to be able to see everything that we're doing. And um, and that was done on purpose uh, is we want to make that connection. And, and uh, you know, with food, it's very, very personal. And so these are individuals that are going to be coming in and looking to us to provide them with nourishment, with uh, with care and compassion. And we show that through food and that's actually one of the reasons why I've been working in the food industry for, for so long is, is my, my background is not really with food. It's really with people and making connections with people through food. Um, it's been amazing. And the fact that I had this opportunity to work for the Bridge Cafe with Restorative Partners, I wasn't looking for it. It found me. And uh, luckily, uh, pun intended, I didn't burn any bridges from previous employments. So I was given this opportunity from someone I worked with uh, years ago. <laughs> Good. Good to hear. 
So when is it opening? What are its hours going to be? I, I guess I'm going to start with, you did make it clear that the hamburger that's currently on your website is a placeholder. Um, you're going to have a brioche bun, not a sesame bun, um, <laughs> which became an early conversation we had. If it's about food, I'll always talk about it. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, uh, yes, that is currently a placeholder, but, uh, you know, we saw that image and we're like, you know what, that's definitely what uh, our burgers are going to look like. One thing that we are really priding ourselves on is supporting local as much as we possibly can. And um, obviously with the position that I'm in, I have a lot of control to determine what vendors and um, organizations we want to partner with. So we're going to be using a local farm to provide our produce. Um, a local food service distrib distributor uh, to provide us with our main, all of our goods, uh, refrigerated, frozen, and shelf stable. We're going to be reaching out to local um, Sunshine uh, Works. Uh, I believe they're based out of Paso Robles to provide us with bottled beverages. So we really want to support the community because we want that support back. And we have not run into anyone that does not want to support our mission and our cause. And it's been such a rewarding thing to hear and see people run to support us and like I want to be involved how could I help uh it's been such a blessing so we're looking at a uh, grand opening around January 25th a soft opening as soon as we can finish this one construction issue that we have <laughs> yep. and we'll do a big blast of information leading up to the soft and the grand opening but the who's who that have helped with this, and believe me, there are many partners. I could not have done this without grants, foundations, um, all kinds of people who supported us financially to raise this into a commercial kitchen and a viable business. So we want to shout out to them. We've had the Board of Supervisors a blessing and encouragement all along the way. A sheriff, DA, probation. You name it in this county are very sitting on the edge of their seat too to be able to acclaim what's been done all of us together. It, it's wonderful to be able to have people who are not only interested in what you're serving as far as food, but the the, the mission of the organization. I think that's yes. very good from that standpoint. Yes. Um, Teresa, let's back up. I've got about a minute before we get into our final thoughts. Um, how long ago did you start working with restorative um, justice as, as your primary focus? Well, it's been sprinkled throughout my life in many different ways um, because I have sat with victims. I've sat with offenders. I visited several prisons and jails. Uh, it became more focused in my life back in, um, I would say, 2006, seven when I started to get on the bus at CMC. And that whet my appetite of reunification of children with their incarcerated parents. And that only deepened in me and I graduated, gradually went towards full-time work in restorative justice work with the launching of Restorative Partners in 2010-11. And so um, it's a part of, I might just say it's, I'm a sister of St. Joseph of Carondelet. We were founded in 1650. Our founders in La Puy, France, um, visited the incarcerated and during the revolution were put incarcerated, incarcerated themselves. And six of them, at least we know, were uh, at the guillotine before France's revolution was over. 
So I come by this through my DNA, my spiritual DNA, through the Sisters of St. Joseph. And many of us in my community have worked in restorative justice practices because it is so wedded to our very foundation. Thank you. That I'm glad you shared that because you've been on the program a number of times and I don't think we've talked history before. So I'm glad that you did share that. We're down to our last few minutes. And as most of our regular listeners know, I try and make sure that my guests have some version of the last word because it's notorious that I talk too much for the program I'm supposed to be interviewing you all on. Um, Eric, let's start with you. Please, what, what do you want to make sure people remember about this discussion and bring forward? And what do you want them to remember and need to know so they can be at the restaurant when you open? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Fred. Uh, one of the things that I want to make sure that I end with is uh, to remind uh, our listeners of our partnership with Cuesta College. Uh, Cuesta College is offering a culinary study program where our clients will learn the fundamentals of cooking, baking, sanitation, and food safety. This partnership has uh, led to another nonprofit, the Chef Ann Foundation, which works with K-12 schools to transition from conventional heat and serve meal preparation to scratch batch cooking. We currently have a client uh, who's working for the San Luis Obispo Unified School District through this program. And... He is loving it and having a great time. And uh, in a couple of weeks, he's going to be getting his certificate uh, and we'll be happy to support him and congratulate and graduate with him. But this is something that uh, was one of the main factors of opening this cafe is using it as an opportunity for training and education uh, for our clients and, and anyone uh, that wants to uh, that was previously justice involved. So you're going to have a soft opening sometime, not to be announced yet, but a <laughs> hard opening, hopefully by the 25th of January. Yes. What are you expecting your hours of service to be? Hours of service, uh, we want to be open during the week from 7 to 3. We're going to start off a morning and lunch, uh, mainly around business hours. Uh, a large majority of our clientele will be county workers and uh, the county workers work those hours almost like banker hours so those are the intentions but of course but of course because we are so close to the fremont theater and uh, we are downtown we eventually will hopefully participate in the local farmers market and then be open later in the evening maybe even weekends uh to support and uh, get those uh theater goers that are coming from a fremont theater and then of course church goers on sunday morning great thank you Teresa. what do you want to make sure we don't forget i would say um, come, taste and see. Walk the bridge with us. Create more inclusive, diverse uh, relationships. Shift our thinking from uh, a justice system that has largely been punitive into restoring and repairing relationships so that this community cannot just survive all of the challenges we have in society, but thrive. And let us break bread with you uh, over the table where we can en mutually enrich each other's lives. That's the purpose of transforming our lives impacted by crime through healing services and relationships. Beyond the restaurant, what kind of volunteers are you looking for to maybe work with you on the program? We always welcome volunteers and especially student internships. Uh, we reach out to Quest and Cal Poly, but the larger community, we visit 
uh, a variety of faith-based communities, uh, clubs, organizations, whoever will have us, we come. And they go through a nine-hour orientation training. The next one will be in January. We'll get those dates up on our website soon. And then from that, they'll be assigned one of the departments in our agency where they can share their time and talent, be it at the cafe, be it on our recovery homes, be it in custody at Juvenile Hall, being an adult mentor for our mentorship program, or here at our drop-in center to doing tutorials or helping our system navigators come alongside our clients to who need uh, help with reincorporation into the community. So we so have one portal. Yes, and then people they, can find you at Restorative Partners. If you if you can't find it, just Google Restorative Partners. It will show up at the top of the list. I can assure you. I've I double check that usually before we go on the. Yes, air. thanks. Thank Fred. you very much. Thank you both for being with us today. It's delightful to talk to you both. Nice to see you, Teresa, again. Thank you. Uh, nice to meet you, Eric. And I'm looking forward to uh, to checking out the restaurant when it opens as soon as possible. I appreciate you for coming on the program today. This is Central Coast Voices. I'm glad you've been with us today. Want to let you know that next week, host Lada Murti will be here. She'll be speaking with guests from Future Leaders of America, Daniel Gonzalez, who's the Director of Organizing and Advocacy, and Yvette Peralta, who's the Director of the Annual Programs. They're going to discuss how the work that they do develops youth resiliency and leadership, creating long-lasting systemic changes by mobilizing youth to advocate for policies that improve their lives and the lives of their communities. Uh, Lata is going to be on with a uh, wonderful program next week. I'll be back with you sometime in early January, as will our other uh, hosts. This is Central Coast Voices. We're a production of Action for Healthy Communities, a project of the Community Foundation of San Luis Obispo County in collaboration with KCBX. Want to thank Joan Geller Sargent for her ongoing support. You can reach us at voices at kcbx.org by email and feedback and passing on questions you may have to our guests today if you'd like. Thank you again to Sister Teresa Harpin and Eric Blanco. It has been wonderful talking with you, and I'm looking forward to breaking bread with both of you very soon. This has Same been Central way. Coast Voices.